This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 273. Hi, I'm Kevin Cruz, author of Great Leaders Have No Rules, Contrarian Principles to Transform Your Team and Business. Inch your way ever closer to greatness every time you listen to this. It's the Read to Lead podcast with my friend, Jeff Brown. Sometimes life is busy and, you know, you can sit and, and make assumptions or you can get out and go do the hard stuff that ultimately gives you those more meaningful insights. Hello and welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. This is the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and your professional growth. My name is Jeff Brown. I'm your host. And I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, then you need to be a lifelong learner, intentional and consistent reading is a must, in other words. The Read to Lead podcast is not only going to help you narrow this reading list, but also help bring you key insights and valuable ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. People like today's guest, Michael Ventura. He'll join us in just a moment. He's the author of a book called Applied Empathy, The New Language of Leadership. I'll be asking Michael to share about the seven empathic archetypes he and his team have utilized to dramatically impact dozens of businesses, how the concept of applied empathy can make us better leaders and better problem solvers, the four tensions that can be stumbling blocks to change, and plenty more. When I'm traveling or speaking or meeting people and fans of the podcast, I'm often asked if the only books I read are the ones featured on the show. And the answer to that question is no. I actually managed to make time to read other books as well, believe it or not. And in case you're curious as to what I'm currently reading, those books include Michael Hyatt's Free to Focus, A Total Productivity System to Achieve More by Doing Less. And though I haven't begun them, I recently ordered three Ryan Holiday books, Ego is the Enemy, The Obstacle is the Way, and The Daily Stoic. And I'm thoroughly enjoying Becoming Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel, and The Making of an American Imagination by Brian J. Jones. Absolutely love this book. Michael Ventura is an accomplished entrepreneur and a creative director. In 2009, he founded Sub Rosa, an award-winning strategy and design practice that helps leaders and their organizations explore, learn, and grow. Sub Rosa's clients include a variety of Fortune 500 companies, companies like GE, Google, Marriott, Nike, uh, the United Nations, the Obama administration, and some of the world's most progressive startups, folks like SoFi and Warby Parker. He has served as a board member and advisor to a variety of organizations. He's a dynamic writer and lecturer and is frequently engaged as an advisor to entrepreneurs and leaders of some of the largest companies across the globe. He's also a visiting lecturer at Princeton University and the United States Military Academy at West Point, where he teaches design thinking and his applied empathy curriculum. His book is called Applied Empathy, The New Language of Leadership. First came out in, I believe, May of last year and has recently been re-released. It's a treat to have you. Michael, welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, and thanks for uh, going through the long bio with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, there's a lot that you've done. There's a lot you've you've accomplished. In fact, I think at one point in your book, you talk about basically having these three separate things going on all at once, but somehow you you manage it all. Somehow you you're able to do it. I, you know, I think that it's a it's a combination of being conscious of of getting enough rest and and taking your vitamins and uh, <laughs> <laughs> keeps you on task. 
Well, I, I think for some, uh, words like, like business and, and empathy are not often uh, used in tandem, uh, not often found in the same sentence. Why, why, Michael, do you think that is? I think it's one of those words that everyone has their own definition for, mm. and a lot of people hear it and have quick associations like empathy equals being nice, being sympathetic, being compassionate. And while those are all wonderful things, empathy is not those things. Mm. Those are often side effects of empathy. Mm. Um, And so one of the things we often have to do when we get inside an organization is to spend the first few minutes of of our dialogue debunking these sort of old patterns that people have and then moving them out into sort of looking at this from a new new perspective. I'm wondering if you could share how you, Michael, came to, to this appreciation of, of empathy as it relates to organizations. I know that's a, that's a long story. Uh, I've read about it in the book, but, but would love to, uh, to hear sort of the, um, the Reader's Digest version for the sake of, of, of the person listening now. Yeah. So we, when you run a services business, everybody's got some slide in their credentials presentation <laughs> that says like, this is what makes us special. And, mm. um, and one day we were, this is going back probably about seven years ago, talking with the team and saying, what is the thing for us that is truly differentiated and not just like the italicized phrase, but like, what is, what is it really? And we didn't know. And that was half troublesome and half eye-opening and opportunistic, right? And so mm. we said, let's let's make this a, a real project. Let's staff it like it was, like, let's treat ourselves like we're our own best client. Mm. And let's go back and look at our work and let's see when we did our work really well, what made it great? And when we did our work not so well, what made it stumble? And the thing we kept coming back to as we analyzed all of those past case studies was the idea of empathy, was the idea of when we took the time, and it does take time, to get out of the room, to go talk to people, to stand in their shoes, to hear their points of view, to ask the extra question, to really unearth new insight, the work was always above and beyond our expectations. But when we sat in a room and shut the door and said, wouldn't it be cool if, or we got high on our own supply and we thought we had all the answers, the work was never as good. And it doesn't mean it didn't deliver the results for the client. Of course, sometimes it still ticked the boxes, but like we weren't as proud of it. It didn't really have the same strength. And so we said this, that we're onto something with this. Let's explore how we might develop a methodology and a practice and a toolkit around this and let's see if it works. And that's kind of how it all began. Yeah, and, uh, and that kind of leads me to my next question. I'm wondering if you can unpack for us a bit of that methodology, if, if you don't mind. And I'm speaking specifically to the, the archetypes that you and your team developed, these seven you know, empathic archetypes. Yeah. So I'm sure most people who are listening have had some kind of interaction with a personality test of some sort, mm. right? Like be that a Myers-Briggs or a StrengthsFinder, or you took a BuzzFeed quiz and you found out what <laughs> Muppet you are, you know, like whatever it was, right? You've done something like that. And we we realized that that's like, a, it's a very human desire to mm. want to be diagnosed, right? Like, tell me, tell me what I am. Tell me what's like sort of running below the surface that I, you know, what's my superpower? What does all this data say about me? And so we wanted to create something like that through these archetypes. But what we also wanted to do was instead of diagnosing, instead of saying you are an ENFP and I am an ITSJ, we wanted to say there are different archetypes for different moments. And what we actually want is to create well-rounded empaths who know how to lead differently depending on the circumstances. So I'll tell you what all seven of them are, but the intent with these was not that you are one, but Mm. that 
you will have some that I go through that you'll be like, oh yeah, that's me. I, I show up that way sometimes. And you'll probably hear others that are like, oh, less, less so. But what we want to do is skill everyone up so that ultimately you're deft with all seven. Mm. And you can call upon these in different moments so that you can elicit understanding in different ways. So in no particular order, the sage the behavior of the sage is to be present, to signal that presence to someone else in the room, to let mm. them know that you value them and the wisdom that they're sharing with you. And that signal builds trust and builds a willingness for them to, to share more. The convener is a host. They know how to create the environment that people feel comfortable. They know how to set how to adjust the set and setting to get people to open up and to share and to understand each other better. The seekers daring, they're confident, they're unafraid. They know what it's like to push up against a challenge and then step across that threshold. They know how to do that for other people. They know how to motivate them in those moments. The alchemist is an experimenter. They're a prototyper. They like the act of failing and recovery. That's how they learn. Uh, they, they learn through that process and they want, they, they learn, they want others to learn that way too. Mm. The confidant is a great listener. They listen to genuinely hear you. They don't listen and plan what they want to say, which is unfortunately what a lot of people do. A lot of podcasters. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, The inquirer is a great question asker. They know how to ask the question that unlocks something more deep or meaningful. And last one, the cultivator is a big picture person. They know that they know where we're going on the horizon. They know how to commit and they know how to take that commitment and pull it into the now and motivate others through that sense of understanding of this is what it's going to take for us to get there. Mm, for, for that for that CEO or company president or manager that's listening right now, Michael, help them understand ways applied empathy can be used to make them a better leader or, or, or a better problem solver. I think one of the first ways it works is by helping them learn about their own gaps and their own biases. Mm, mm. Because I think as as you move up the ranks in an organization, you start to become more and more confident in your capability, which you should because you're obviously being recognized for it. Mm. But sometimes that can also become a cheat or a shortcut to doing the laborious work of actually getting out of the corner office Mm. and going to talk to people and going to understand what makes them tick and meeting your customers and hearing their feedback or talking to your employees and understanding what's going on in their life or meeting with shareholders more than, you know, a couple times a year, whatever it is. Those are the things that sometimes life is busy and you know you can sit and and make assumptions or you can get out and go do the hard stuff that ultimately gives you those more meaningful insights so i think one of the first things we see with doing this type of work inside organizations is that leaders start to learn more about their blind spots and also learn more about who they're not talking to uh, or mm. what they're not hearing so that they they get a more full more well-rounded picture of the world around them you talk a bit about, I think in chapter two or three, about these these stumbling blocks to change, uh, the tensions you've witnessed emerge as stumbling blocks to change. When we do this kind of work, what ends up happening is there's like a microcosmic and a macrocosmic aspect that are sometimes at odds and sometimes in sync. And so these are these tensions that start to rear their heads as we start to practice empathy for ourselves and for our teams and for our organization. So the first one is the the, the balance between objective and subjective solutions, mm. right? So you might be a very subjective thinker, right? You might live in the realm of multiple right answers. You might have a job that relies on your creativity and your ability to come up with ideas and your ability to, to put different types of solutions on the table. And you might be that type of person in a more 
objective culture. You might be in an engineering-led business where the the C-level executives all come from a bit more of a binary, black, white, yes, no, right, wrong, show me the data kind of mindset. And if that is the case, sometimes people run into challenges in getting their work out in the world or getting their approvals to keep things moving. And so one of the things that we talk about in that is you might have to learn if you're or a subjective person in an objective organization, how to present your solutions differently, how to be empathic to the the buyer of your recommendations, mm-hmm. right? You might need to say, look, there are three ways we can do this. All of them are feasible, but here's the, here's here's some data. Here's some hard pieces of evidence that I've unearthed as I did this work. And here's how I would think about evaluating each of these so that we can make an informed choice, not just a, I think this one's the coolest, so let's do that, right? And that's mm-hmm. and that's about that's about repackaging. It's not necessarily changing the idea, but it's it's being empathic to your audience. It's learning that I need to adjust my presentation of this information in order to make it effective. And, and well received. We see that a lot, especially in uh, tech businesses that are often product and engineering led, but then have uh, a growing need for the narrative and the brand-based storytelling that comes along with that. Right. So how do you how do you bring that softer, qualitative thinking into perhaps a more sort of rigid and quant environment? And that's that's you know that's where that emerges sometimes. Uh, going back uh, a little bit earlier into the book, there is an exercise that you were taught that you thought was was kind of silly, I think, at first would be the right word, but then realized just how profoundly it impacted you. And that's the story of opening doors with your left hand. <laughs> uh, you're a right-handed person, opening doors with your left hand. Uh, related to that, what what have you personally learned about showing up and, and, and being more self-aware? So everything matters. And we take for granted or we assume that it's just what you say. And it's just the way you say it, perhaps, that people are paying attention to. And that's not the case. It's the nonverbals. It's the the presence. It's the, the subtle cues that a leader gives off that also are impacting everything from culture to work product to camaraderie to, to you know, everything in between. And so the the example about the, the doors, I had, a, I had a spiritual teacher who I was working with for a long while. And uh, one of the first exercises he gave me was about learning presence. And he was adamant about the fact that I was doing three things at once at all times. I was never, <laughs> ju- I was never just wholly in the moment. And he said, so I'm going to give you an exercise. What hand, are, are you left-handed or right-handed? I said, I'm right-handed. He said, okay, I want you to open every door you come to with your left hand for the next week. I said, okay, that sounds easy enough. He said, when you realize that you didn't open it with your right hand, you should make a little note. And then next week, tell me how many times you, you got it right and got it wrong. Mm. And I saw him the following week and I told him, Gil, I have opened two doors with my right hand or something <laughs> close to that. And and he started laughing and he said, yeah, you're always thinking about something else. And so I went and I did that practice again and again and again and again. And fast forward, maybe six weeks later, I was getting the hang of it. I was really being present. I was really thinking about where I was and just not thinking about the thing I just came from or the thing I'm going to, but just being at the door. And I told him, Gil, I'm so excited. I, I'm nailing it. I'm opening all the doors in my left hand. And he smiled and he said, great, now switch back. <laughs> and it was just this act of how do you keep yourself on your toes? How do you keep yourself self-observant so that you don't slip into that unconscious behavior? Mm. Well, if, if, if practicing empathy, Michael, is, is something that doesn't come naturally, uh, aside from the, the example you just, you just gave, what might be some rituals we should consider that will help make it become more second nature? One of the first things I often tell people is become the best question asker. Mm. 
because I think we we live in a world for many of us that we are oriented toward answers and solutions, right? <laughs> it's 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 very easy when someone tells you what's wrong. Most people's mind goes to how can I solve that for you? What would I do in your shoes? <laughs> how, right? As opposed to just saying, oh, how does that feel? Mm. Right? Or tell me more about that. When did that first start happening for you? Right? And just yeah. the, the taking the time for inquiry. The reason we go to solution is because we have a lot of stuff to do. And so we just want to solve it so we can get <laughs> on to the next thing. Right? It's like, okay, good. Check. Got that one off the list. Let's move down the list. Mm. But it might not be the most healthy thing to do. And what might be the most healthy thing to do is to take the extra five minutes to ask a couple more questions so that maybe that person figures out how to solve it on their own. Or maybe mm. that you learn something about them that helps you work with them better in the long run. I can so improve in that area. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Uh, asking questions or being curious? What, what would be another example? Um, another one is being aware of where the the gaps in the in the perspective that you're taking on something are. So I'll give you a good example. Mm. I was with a CEO of a furniture brand not too long ago, and they're they're a big business. They're a billion dollar business, and we were sitting and talking about how their growth had been so great over the past few years. And he said, you know, and our goal over the next two years is to grow from one to two billion dollars. Mm. And I said, wow, that's I mean, it's audacious, but I'm sure it's you know it's it's, it's it's, it's a goal worth having. What keeps you up at night? And he listed five other furniture brands. Mm. And I said, I think, you know, with all due respect, you've got a big blind spot in your perspective. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, those five furniture brands and paying attention to them is what got you to 1 billion. But that's not what's going to get you to 2 billion. What's going to get you to 2 billion is worrying about things like Sonos. And he said, Sonos doesn't make furniture. <laughs> and I said, I know, but put yourself in the shoes of, of a new family that just moved into a new home. They don't say, this is our couch budget. They say, this is our budget, right? And mm. they're going to allocate money to perhaps a new couch or maybe a new Sonos system or a new TV or a meal delivery kit system because now they've got a bigger kitchen and they can cook at home, mm. right? So their decision-making is broader. And as a result, your competitive set is now broader because you don't need to beat Crate and Barrel. You need to beat Sonos and Blue Apron. And he wow. sat back in his chair and was like, oh man, I had a huge blind spot on that. That That <laughs> is a problem we need to think about. So where are your perspective blind spots? Wow, that's, that's so insightful. Well, it's one of those things that I think you know, we, we get really accustomed as, as a service provider to thinking that way because that's our, that's our job, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm constantly, when someone tells me the thing they're trying to solve, I don't just think about it from their point of view, but I think about it from the people they're solving it for's point of view mm -hmm. and their shareholders and the media and prospective new employees who they might want to attract to work at this place, right? Like all of those constituent groups need to be considered if we're going to, if we're going to get it right consistently. It reminds me of the story you share when you were invited to to teach a college course after presenting to a group of students and it, it proved really popular. And I think it was, if I remember correctly, you sent them out onto campus to look for ways they could improve various things around campus. And they all kind of seemed to come back with the same ideas because they were looking at everything kind of from their, from their own viewpoint. Is, am, am I yeah. relating that accurately? Exactly. They all went out and looked at Main Street in this college town and they were we were told find opportunities for design solutions to be brought to bear and they all came back with recommendations that you would expect a 19-year-old <laughs> 
college student to recommend. Like, we need more after hours dinner spots. We need more places to park bicycles, right? Mm. And when they came back, we said, how many of you think you have a unique idea? And everyone was like, oh, no, I've nailed it. I, you know, I, I've got, I've got the, the best idea among us. And then when they all put them up on the wall and they realized there were really three ideas across the whole class, they realized, oh, wow, we really weren't taking perspective. We sent them back out. We said, okay, now go and talk to five people that aren't like you. Mm. and then come back and make a recommendation. And all of a sudden, we had recommendations for more handicap parking, wider sidewalks for moms with strollers. You know, there's all these other things that people hadn't been bearing in mind because they were only looking at the world from their shoes. Mm. Well, Michael, in the time we have left, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask you that aren't directly related to the book. But before I do that, is there anything else that that you want to make sure we walk away with from the book itself? The only thing I'll say, because I think it's important, is that we live in a very polarized time in the world right mm. now, whether that's politically, whether that's socially, whether that's you know climate-wise. All of these things are causing more and more divisiveness and more and more silos that we see our world through. And I am not saying that empathy is the cure-all. It isn't. Mm. But it is a step in the right direction. And the leaders who bring empathy into their decision-making process are going to find bridges, not barriers, connect the those different worlds more meaningfully. So I, I'm a big advocate for this, not just because it might help your bottom line, but because it might help us all be here 50 years from now. Mm. I'd love for you to think about the books that you've read over the course of your career, or, or if you want to, just the last you know, few years that have had an impact on you, a profound impact on you, and, and maybe share how or why uh, those handful of books, maybe one, two, or three impacted you as they did. I'll give you three in in sort of different life stages. Okay. Um, there's, a, there's a book I read as an undergrad called The Monk and the Riddle. And it's a business-ish book, I would say. <laughs> um, but there's not much about it that I remember except one chapter, which was called The Deferred Life Plan. Mm. And it was how so many of us, particularly entrepreneurs, will do a thing for a period of time so that they can go do another thing. Um, and so they're like, oh, I'm going to do this. And then once I've got enough money squirreled away, then I'm going to go fulfill my real passion, which is painting, right? And it, it makes the case that, look, don't live a deferred life plan because you don't know what's going to happen. Mm. And it's really meaningful that you, if you know what you want to be doing, go do it. Right. And that's so it's an encouragement to entrepreneurs, but it's also an encouragement to anybody who really has a passion, but they're ignoring it because they think they need some safety net or cushion or whatever it is in order to get there. So that's oh, one man. that comes to mind. Uh, another is The Fifth Discipline. It's a book by uh, Peter Senge. I like this book because it talks about systems thinking. And I'm a big systems thinker advocate. I think that when we look at the entirety of a system, new opportunities for innovation, for efficiency, for sustainability emerge. But often we get caught in our own little bubble of the part of the system that we are responsible for, as opposed to pulling out to that 10,000 foot view and really seeing the entire system from raw material all the way to finished product or whatever it is, whatever system you operate in. And, uh, and so the fifth discipline really helps provide some thinking and some perspective on how to do that well. Uh, and then the last one I'll mention is a book that just came out, actually, by a friend of mine named Scott Belsky. Uh, it's called The Messy Middle. And it's it's a really great book. Scott's a, Scott's a great entrepreneur um, who built a business called Behance, which ultimately sold to Adobe. He's oh. now a chief product officer over at Adobe. And one of the things that he talks about in The Messy Middle is that we all talk about the start and the finish of stuff. <laughs> 
but we never talk about this messy middle, this circuitous route, this this in the in the course of building something when it breaks or when you have to pivot or when it derails and you've got to come up with something new or when the money dries up and you haven't raised the next round or whatever it is right you you always hear about the the glorious finishes or the or the the flame outs that that end something or you hear about like the kind of the the the, the freneticism and the excitement of starting but there's the real work happens in the middle and uh, and this book just does a really nice job of telling those stories uh, you remind me of uh, of an author who's been on the show three or four times, and two of the times he's been on were to talk about a book he's written called Start and another book he's written called Finish. <laughs> I, I think I know what his next book's going to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I know you do a decent amount of, of public speaking. I'd be curious to know, Michael, if you're willing, any tips you might uh, share for, for delivering a public talk that uh, is impactful and memorable. The thing that a friend of mine told me years ago, she's a she's actually a speaker coach for the TED conference. And so she's been coaching the TED speakers for years. Mm. And uh, and early on in doing this work, she pulled me aside and she said, look, the most important thing is to be yourself mm. and to find your style, right? Some people stand in like the power position and don't <laughs> pace the floor at all and just mm. deliver. And for some people, that's how that works. But she's like, if that's not your style, if you need to walk back and forth across the stage, do that. But do it in a way that's measured and metered and comfortable, not mm. frenetic and running back and forth. But like, find your, find your style. And the only way you're going to do that is by practicing, by doing it, by being uncomfortable. I was petrified of public speaking when mm. I was uh, in uh, high school and, um, and oh, into my too. undergrad. And, uh, but nonetheless, I was forced to do it for a whole <laughs> litany of reasons. And, uh, and it was the best thing because you, you know, this is like that 10,000 hours idea, right? Mm. You've just got, you've got to put in the work. Oh, I mean, I, I'm there with you. High school, college, I could not stand public speaking. Uh, you're, you're <laughs> right though. I mean, you just have to force yourself to do it. And eventually uh, it can actually be something that you enjoy doing, which I do now. I, I could not imagine 30 years ago, someone say, Oh, you're going to love this. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but it's true. Way. It's true. Well, uh, lastly, Michael, what's, what's ahead for you and your team? What's sort of in the hopper that's, that's got you excited as you look ahead? So I think the, the biggest thing for us right now is we're in this wonderful spot where Applied Empathy has now had a year in the public eye. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our clients and a lot of new clients have found us and said, like, this is something we love. And they've brought us in and we've done this good work with them. And now we're actually getting to this cool spot where we're getting to co-create the 201 and the 301 of this for our mm. specific organization, right? When we're sitting across the table from a client and they say like, thanks, like this, this, this approach is working. Now here are three new problems that are emerging for us in our business. Mm. How do we take this as a foundation and scale it to a new height for this particular problem? And so we're getting into this real customized bespoke level of organizational design work that is really exciting for us. So I think that's, that's probably the big one for me. Mm. Well, the book again is called Applied Empathy, the new language of leadership. His name is Michael Ventura. Michael, it's been a privilege to have you on the show. I appreciate you taking the time to do this so very much. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a really great conversation. For more about Applied Empathy, a summary of our conversation, including links and resources that Michael and I talked about, 
as well as ways to connect with him online, you can visit the blog post created just for this episode. You'll find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 273 for episode 273. At the top of the show, I mentioned what I was reading. I'd be curious to know what you're reading, along with any feedback, suggestions, or questions you may have about the show. You can write me at jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. If you're currently feeling generous and just itching for a way to exercise your generosity muscles, consider leaving us a rating and review in your app of choice. That can sometimes make it easier for others to find the show who haven't yet discovered it. And I also encourage you to share the show with a friend you think might benefit from it. Well, I hope you found today's episode useful. If so, I'll see you next time we meet. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. 